Morning, Christchurch. Before I begin, um, can I just say hello to uh, Tracy at, at home? She's not feeling well at the moment, and uh, this reading is quite apt. Uh, so I pray for everybody who is not well at the moment and is in need of healing. Thank you. Uh, today's reading is from taken from John uh, chapter 5, verses 1 to 15, the healing at the pool. Some time later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem, one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which, is, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covering colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for eight, uh, 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in, the, in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was the Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, The man who made me well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, Who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd and that, that was there. Later Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be Well, Christchurch, I think you got off lightly this morning because I have seen the curate use that photograph of a crying baby and encourage those listening not to make the baby Jesus cry. So thus far, the fact that it's just a member of the congregation that you're making cry means I think you've escaped quite lightly. Um, I also felt a bit like that toddler last weekend when I looked at this reading ahead of this morning and thought, it's happened again. How come I get these readings that are theologically tricky? If you've read, well, if you were listening, hopefully Toby reading them beautifully for us, or if you've read John 5 before, you'll know that questions of healing in the Gospels are always tricky. And they're trickier in John than they might be in some of the other Gospels. Let me explain why that is. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we often call the synoptic Gospels. It's a strange word, but I'll explain it. Sin, not sin, S-I-N, as in, you filthy sinner, stop doing that. Although, you know, if that's a word from the Lord for you today, receive it well. Um, you can see a lot from up here is all I'm going to say. Um, and Jesus sees the rest, don't forget that. And um, it doesn't mean sin, S-I-N, it's S-Y-N, as in the same. And so the synoptic gospels, it often means they look at things in the life of Jesus the same sort of way. And we get the same sorts of stories repeated in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And some people have a theory that perhaps they were using the same tradition. And I agree, it's because they were all hanging around with the same bloke called Jesus, and so they saw things similarly. And they wrote things down in a, more or less a similar way. They tell the same sorts of stories. So, for example, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell us about the Last Supper, what we now call Holy Communion. That's there in those Gospels. It doesn't appear, weirdly, in John. John remembers the night before, or the night that Jesus was betrayed, but doesn't tell us about the weird supper. He tells us about the washing of the feet. 
And I have to say, if I were going to remember anything from that night, I probably would also remember the, ooh, the washing of the feet. Because having done that for quite a number of years as a vicar myself, it's a special experience. I'll tell you that. And that's all I'm going to say about it. I'm with John. I would remember that. That would stick in my memory. But John doesn't remember communion. And there are other examples as well, where some of the stories in John's gospel are a bit different, where he's, he's just remembering different things. And John has structured his gospel in a particular way. There are themes that recur over and over again. Themes like love. Now, you might think that's a Jesus theme, and it is. But John seems to draw our attention to love more often than anybody else. And life is another favorite theme of John's. That word zoe, anyone called Zoe? That word means life. Zoe comes up again and again in John's gospel. He loves it. And there are also these seven signs. They don't appear in any of the other Gospels in this way. There are similar stories, but the seven signs, and we're at week three, so we're not quite halfway there. These seven signs appear in John because they tell us something. Anna started a few weeks ago by reminding us a sign points somewhere. These seven signs are only in John, and they tell us something about who God is, therefore about who we are, because we'll only really understand who, God is, who we are as we understand who God is. And the reason for that is you were his idea. So he came up with you, he thought the world needed you in it, and therefore if you want to know who you are, you've got to ask the inventor. Don't bother looking in here, you won't find much of any help. Ask him instead. Right? That's the basic Christian idea. We ask God because he knows us better than we know ourselves. So we know who God is, we know something of who we are, and then we know something of what the world is about, what it's for, how to live in it. Now, John chapter 5, this is the third sign, this healing at the pool of Bethesda, is one of the weirdest, strangest, most challenging of the signs. They're all a bit odd and a bit challenging, but this one I think is particularly hard, partly for the reasons that Toby highlighted for us when he read it. It's a, it's a story about healing, about God's power, about the potential of Jesus Christ to make a difference in the world, and it's not about some of our usual themes of faith and trust unusual. I don't know what comes to mind when you think of the pool of Bethesda. Maybe you might think of a nice sort of paddling pool in the garden or a big swimming pool if you're a bit posh and you've got a swimming pool in your garden. Um, actually, the pools, plural, of Bethesda, there were two of them, a northern pool and a southern pool. They were absolutely enormous by the time of Jesus' day, much, much, much bigger than this building you're in now. They were huge. If I could have that one slide, these are my holiday pictures. Um, a few, oh, it's a bit hard to see one on the left, but a few years ago I was there. This is the Pool of Bethesda. It's still there. And it existed 800 years before Jesus was born. And originally, and the left-hand side is the Pool of Bethesda in the pictures, originally the pool, the northern pool and the southern pool, they're joined together. Originally it was a sluice gate from a river that gathered a reservoir of drinking water. And then as time went by, it was put to different uses. So by about the year 200 BC, before Jesus, before Christ, um, it was being used as a kind of ritual bath, a place that, uh, what's called a mikveh, if you're in the Jewish tradition, a place where you go and be physically cleansed as part of your spiritual cleansing for important festivals like Passover. And uh, if you ever go to Jerusalem, you see little, little mikveh just outside the temple, and they're sort of steps down, you dunk yourself under, and you come out the other side, just like that. Um, that's what baptism means. Baptizade in Greek means to dip down and come out again. 
So when we sprinkle water on babies, the Greek Orthodox throw them in and pull them out of the pool because that's the idea. You dip in and out. And so these mikveh were, were cleansing, ritual cleansing pools. But by the time of Jesus, this sacred space had been occupied by the Romans. And so the building on the right, what is ruins to you and me? On the right are two enormous temples either side of the pool of Bethesda. One, uh, a, a temple to Asclepius. Now, Asclepius was the Roman god of healing. And on the other side of the pool was the temple to Fortuna. I'm not going to break out into song, don't worry. If you get that reference, you get it. If you don't, you don't. Um, O Fortuna, on the other side of the pool, the god of fortune. And basically, by the time of Jesus, people gathered and they sat in the porticos, the kind of covered archways out of the sun, up some steps, waiting to be dropped in the pool because the pool would move. They sort of um, swirl a little bit at certain times of the year, probably to do with the movement of the earth, but we're not really sure, and, and rainfall and the flow of water down the hills into the pool. But certainly at certain times of the year, the pool water would move. And you'd sit waiting. And if you had good luck, if Fortuna was with you, then Asclepius, the god of healing, would help you out. And you would get well. So that's the context for this reading from John 5. Jesus walks into a situation, a great big place. And let me say, that picture on the left, you can just about work it out. There is actually, I'm going walking. I'm sorry, camera people, I will do this. Um, there's water still in the bottom of here, but you can see the little bit, the kind of level bit at the top. That is the original top of the pool. It's about 13 meters deep. So we're not talking a little sort of dipping pool or a swimming pool. This thing was serious, a serious mass of water. I am 194 centimeters if I stand up properly, which I never do, but ever do. So I'm nearly two meters. So it's about six and a half times the height of me, the depth of this thing. So if you were ill, you needed people to take you down the steps from the porticos and into the water. And if Fortuna was with you, Asclepius would help you and you would get healed. Jesus walks onto the scene and the place is littered, littered with those who are desperate. He gives us a little list in John, the infirm, the blind, those who can't walk. John tells us the place is full of people. And here's the thing. The man we meet in the story today, 38 years. That's longer than some people in this room have been alive. He sat there waiting. And I think this story is so sad. It's tragic. Because when Jesus says to him, do you want to get well? The bloke says, I haven't got any friends to help me. He looks at the pool and he says, that's where healing is. It's 12 steps. It's not even a full flight of stairs in your house. 12 steps. And he says, I've got no one to help me. I've got no friends. It's an amazing moment, this. It's tricky as well. I said it was theologically hard. Why does Jesus go to this place that's littered with the infirm, the blind, those who are desperately in need, and only pick one guy to heal? The honest answer is, I don't know. I'll give you a guess. I'll tell you my educated guess, if you can call it educated. But I don't know why Jesus only picks one. My educated guess is this. 
Jesus deals with who is in front of him. So he's walking along and he sees the man and he knows he's been there 38 years and he says to him, what can I do for you? What do you need? And he responds to the need of the man who's right there in front of him, who he's talking to. But he doesn't come in like a superhero and take away all of the problems. He doesn't take away all of the pain, heal all of the sick, cure all of the blind. And I wonder if that's that tells us something about the world that we live in. You see, we sort of tell ourselves that if we teach our children to be a bit more moral, then that'll be the end of racism or sexism. If we throw some more money at research, that'll be the end of cancer. Think about it. You ever watched, this'll age me, those of you watch you know, Poirot on ITV2, and about nine o'clock at night on a Sunday, the adverts kick in, and you'll have women in leotards getting ready to run a race for life. Cancer, we're coming for you. We're going to get you. We're going to kick cancer's butt. We're going to cure the world. We just need more money, more research, more intelligence, and we can fix ourselves. We teach our children to be more moral. We throw more money at our research. If we, if we have a more just society, if our politics gets purer, we will be okay. The problem is... We just need to do better. The Christian tradition says something else. You can't cure the human heart with human effort. You can't cure the human heart with human effort. Most of our problems, most of our problems are in here. So when Jesus walks onto the scene, notice what happens in the story. He connects with the man and he says to him, what can I do for you? Do you want to be healed? The guys lay there, broken, desperate, lonely. And Jesus gives him the time of day. Do you want to be healed? The man says, I've got nobody. And Jesus says, well, you've got me. Take up your mat and walk. Come on, let's go. Take up your mat and walk. It's a powerful moment in the story. He says to him, do you want to be made well? But the sick man says, sir, I am on my own. There's no one to help me. I've got to make my own way, and someone gets there before me. And Jesus, with compassion, says to him, stand up. Take up your mat. Walk. And at once, it says, the man got up. At once, it made all the difference. So this is a sign. What's it pointing to? Well, I think there might be two things for us to think about. The first one is simply this. Jesus cares. Jesus doesn't come up to the man and say, right, let me, let's have a little conversation about God. Let's see where you're at with your faith. Uh, let's see if uh, we can get you to pray the, the prayer of repentance. And then, and then, I'll offer you some of the kind of bonuses of being a follower of mine. So let's get you in, get you sorted, get you converted, and then I'll be interested in what your problems are. 
This happens not in the religious context. It doesn't happen in a place of worship. It doesn't happen in the synagogue. It happens in the world. It happens outside of the religious places. Jesus is found where people are in need, where people are broken, where they're lonely, where they're sick, where they're desperate. And Jesus is there saying, what can I do for you? I think that's flipping amazing. It's like he rolls up his sleeves and says, all right, I could hang around with all the nice, clean, holy people, but I'm going to roll up my sleeves and get stuck in. I'm going to come down to where the scumbag sinners are. Hello, scumbag sinners. I'll be with those people. I'll be with the people who are hurting, broken, sick, in need. That's where you'll find me. We often get it the wrong way around because we think this is like the holy place and we come here to withdraw from the rest of life. Sorry, I partly have very holy people because you always put up with me doing this. Um, But we come to church to kind of withdraw from real life, to withdraw from how difficult it can be out there. Maybe you've got that sense that this is a place of peace. This is a place where you come for, for, for you to be spiritually recharged. But here's the thing, we come here to meet him to be sent back out. Because that's what he does. That's where he is. Asking the question of those round about us, what do you need and how can I help? The word we use to describe that in the church is mission. The mission of God, the God who is in the world with those on the margins, the least, the lost, the broken, the hurting, the sick, the forgotten, the ignored, the lonely, and saying, what do you need and how can I help? This is the God we worship. This is that God. I know I point to the cross all the time. It's not, I don't think it's beautiful in lots and lots of ways, but I do love that verse. It's from... um, 1 John 3, hereby perceive we the love of God. The second half of that verse goes on, therefore, brethren, let us love one another. Because this is what the love of God looks like. It looks like Jesus. It looks like him offering himself for others, giving himself to those who are broken, to those who are in need, to those who are hurting. This is what love looks like. Therefore, let us love one another. He gives us the example. He shows us the way. He tells us what it is to be church. The second thing I think this points us to is the upside-down, topsy-turvy world of God. I wonder if you noticed in the story how it ends or where we finish the reading. Jesus says something really bizarre to the man. He does this all the time. Jesus is the best news you'll ever hear and the biggest headache you'll ever have. Forgive me, Lord, but he is because he says things that make your brain ache. The end of this reading, verse 14, says, Later Jesus found the man in the temple and said to him, You've been made well. Now stop sinning. Who mentioned sin? That's not in here. What are you doing? Now stop sinning. Where's that come from? It's the topsy-turvy world of God. So often, we want to have a gate that's the kind of repentance gate. And you can kind of come in if you become a Christian, if you repent. And then God will bless you. But not only do we see God's heart in this, not only is this a sign of God's heart being drawn out to the least and the lost and the broken, this missional God who goes to where people are hurting, but we see the generosity of God. God. 
The God who says, what do you need, before he says, repent and believe. The God who says, I've come to help, before he says, by the way, you're a sinner and you need to sort your life out. Now, he says both. Sometimes we're tempted to say the nice things, Jesus loves you, we've come to help you, you know, all the lovely, warm, cuddly stuff. And we're a bit scared of mentioning the S word. And they, you, know, you all look at people like me with these things and you think, well, they can say the S words because that's what they're paid for. I'm not paid enough to say it, right? But Jesus says both. But he does it in a way that's inviting. He turns up and he says to this man, what do you need? How can I help? And he helps. He cares. He rolls up his sleeves. He gets stuck in. And then later he says to him, now listen, you've tasted a little bit. You've seen a little bit of what the kingdom of God looks like. You've felt some of that love. You've felt some of that compassion. You've felt something of the heartbeat of God. Now, the sin stuff. Let's talk about that. That stuff will kill you. It will poison you. It will break your heart again and again. So why not ditch it? You've tasted something of the goodness of God, the kindness of God. Ditch the sin. Ditch the selfishness, ditch the pride, ditch the anger, ditch the self-interest at the expense of other people. Ditch that stuff and come and taste more of the goodness of God. Ditch that stuff and come and taste more of the generosity of God. Come and see that the Lord is good, that he loves you, and that what he has for you is so much richer, so much better, so much more life-fulfilling than what you have if you try to go it alone. I've got no one, says the man. You've got me, says Jesus. I'm on your side because I love you. Flips our usual way of thinking about it. The generosity of God comes first. The kindness of God comes first. And with it, the invitation to a renewed life, a life of faith and a life that ditches sin. So my question for you is simply this, and Al's going to come and play in just a moment for us. If Jesus were here, and he is, and if he were to say to you this morning, what do you need, and he is, what are you going to say? Will you tell him the truth? Will you tell him if you're lonely? Will you tell him if you're broken and hurting? Will you tell him if you're sick? See, the Jesus who went to Bethesda, that place where so many were in need, is the Jesus who walks among us right now. The Jesus we'll come face to face with at the, the communion table, who gives himself to us, rolls up his sleeves and gets stuck into our lives. He says, I'm here. What do you need? I've come to help. And then through us, he asks the same question to everybody out there. He asks the same question in a world that is broken, that is hurting, that is empty, that is full of loneliness and pain. Through us, he asks that same question. Hey, I love you. I've come to help. What do you need? Let people taste the goodness of God. Let them see the generosity of God in the lives that we lead. But that begins with us knowing something of that generosity. So as Al plays, we'll be quiet for a few minutes. Let me invite you if you want to. You might want to put your hands out and tell the truth with God. You might find it easier to kneel or to lean. But close your eyes. Don't be distracted by what else is going on. 
Jesus says to you this morning, I've come to help. What do you need? 